0: Glad that you've chosen to be with us here today. And uh, like Brandon said earlier, today marks the one year anniversary of the Edgewood campus. And uh, we're excited about what the Lord's doing over there in Edgewood. And um, to me, it's no coincidence that today, our focus is gonna be on connecting to others and how we get fully connected with others. And it marks the same day that a year ago, a body of believers was receptive to the Lord's leading, was faithful and obedient, and we connected outside this community and started to work in it, and we connected to someone else, and, and and I think it's a wonderful thing to see what the Lord is doing there. So this week we're in week two of our uh, series called Bust the Move, and for <laughs> all of you that asked, that's all the move that's going to be busted by me this morning, <laughs> and it was spirit led. <clears throat> so, but week two of Bust the Move, and and last week Brian he uh, he showed us how his focus was on how we connect to God, right? And he told us about three different types of people. You know, one this, that person that is isolated. You know, two, that is marginally connected and that person that is fully connected to God. And he showed us why, not only why, but how we move from point A to point B. You know, and how we connect back to God is we do it through worship, through prayer, and through the reading of his word. So this week, our focus is going to be on connecting to others. So I'm going to take the same three people. And over here, at point A, I'm going to put those that are isolated and marginally connected. And over here, at point B is going to be those that are fully connected to others in biblical community. We're going to look at how we move from point A to point B. But not only how, but why we do that. And by the end of this, this morning, the why is going to be very clear, and the how is just going to be right in the middle of it. Okay? So let's look at those that are isolated and marginally connected. What are some characteristics that would come out of a person that is isolated and not connected with other people? You know, there can be a false sense of security in that person. You know, you get that, that I'm the master of my own universe type mindset. I don't need anyone else. I can do this on my own right? So you get that false sense of self. I'm the one running this. I don't need anyone else. But in that, sometimes, you know, you can get an arrogance and a pride, you know, you've done enough on your own, you can handle it. So you get a little prideful in that. But when things happen and you can't handle it, you know, that person sometimes, you know, there can be a little anger, right? But then there's can be some confusion too. How, I mean, I could handle this before, but now all of a sudden I can't. What's, what's going on? But if you're isolated, and you're not connected. You may be, you know, putting it off on someone else. You know, I'm I can't connect to them because they're not connecting to me, right? So you can get a little angry and a little bitter. But what are some characteristics of those that are fully connected in biblical community? One, you grow in Christ likeness, right? If you're connected with people that are heading the same direction, like minded, encouraging, such like that, there's going to be growth there. And if you're growing in Christ likeness, there's going to be a fruit that comes out of you. You know, through the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Those things are going to come out of you if you're growing in Christ likeness. When you're connected to others, there's a security, a real security there that when difficult times do happen, you know that you have support. You know, you have, you have people that are going to come alongside you, you know, and encourage you and lift you up, lend you aid when you need it, and help you along through difficult times. And then there's a clarity of purpose that you can have when you're fully connected. You know that you're all like-minded, you're headed in the same direction, you have the same vision. There's a clarity of that purpose, then there's a confidence that you get in that clarity with other people. Then you see the larger perspective, you see things greater than yourself, so then there's a humility that's there as well, but it's not without its difficulties. For point A and point B, if you're isolated, marginally connected, you're gonna experience difficulties in this life, but even if you're fully connected to others, you're definitely gonna experience difficulty, why? Because though you may not be struggling with something difficult, if you're fully connected to others, chances are someone's going to be experiencing some difficult times. And it's going to affect you. If you're fully connected and you're there to help them, you're going to have to help them. And sometimes it's dirty, sometimes it's a little muddy, sometimes it's hard. It can get on you. But biblical community embraces that and helps people through that. All right, so how do we move then? For those two, we look at those two people. How do we move and why do we move from point A to point B? So first, let's, let's define connection. What's a connection? It's two things coming together, right? But one, you, you know, you can't have a connection if one just touches another. The other one has to touch back like a link in a chain, right? One connects to the other and the other back to the one. If the one lets go, there's no longer a connection, right? It's a two-way street. You know, consider a light fixture in your house in the simplest form. You know, there's, there's, there's two wires, a black wire and a white wire. There's a power and a neutral I know we're not all electrical engineers, but that that white wire connects the fixture to the switch and back to the source. So it's not necessarily on, but it is connected to the source. So how does it come on? You make the second connection at the switch, and it sends power to the light, and it comes on. All right, y'all with me? First, connection here. It's a two-way street. So this morning, we're going to be in Acts 9. If you want to go ahead and turn turn to Acts 9. And we're going to look at the conversion of a man. And in his conversion we see two connections. And out of those two connections, we see just a change in in church history from that point. But this man's name is Saul, and some of you know him as the Apostle Paul. But before he was the Apostle Paul, his name was Saul. He was born a Roman citizen, he was raised in Greek society, he was a Pharisee, he was a Hebrew. He was a highly intelligent, highly educated man. Now Luke first introduces us to him at the end of Acts 7, at the stoning of Stephen, and real quickly, Stephen was a bold early Christian. Matter of fact, he was the first Christian martyr. Luke tells us at the end of uh, Acts 6 that, that Stephen was seized. He was taken before the Jewish council. He was wrongfully accused, and then Stephen gives this speech to these people. And if you've never read Acts 7, I encourage you to read it because in my opinion, it is the greatest speech in the entire Bible. Because this Christian man, in, in, in face of opposition and oppression and persecution, wrongly accused, on trial, so to speak, gives this speech back to these people, a stiff-necked people, and just hits them with such truth from the entirety of their history up to now. And at the end of chapter 7, he says something that gets him killed. At 7.58, he says, uh, Luke says that, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So when we're introduced to Saul, he's at the stoning of the first Christian martyr. They're laying their garments at his feet. Essentially, you know, some would say that he's signing off on that. He's co-signing, he's instigating this execution. That's who Saul is as we're introduced to him. Then Acts eight, verses one through three. Jump over to Acts nine verse one and two. But Saul, still breathing threats under murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he may so that he so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So that's how Luke introduces us to this man named Saul, a persecutor of the church. And at this point here, he's got letters from the high priest to go to another town and round up Christians and bring them back. To be put in prison, likely executed. But how does Paul later, the Apostle Paul, describe himself at this time? At Acts 22, verses 3 to 5 to the Jews, Paul says, "Um, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, uh, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of us are, all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death Binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. He's saying, if you don't believe me, go to the high priest, go to the counselor, and they're gonna tell you this is who I was. He says, for them I, for them, I, from them I received letters uh, to the brothers and journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were all there, bring them in bonds to Jerusalem. And then again to King Agrippa in Acts 26, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name, many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in a raging fury against them. His own words, he had a raging fury against the church. Against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In Galatians 1, he says, for you have heard of my former Former life in Judaism, how persecuted the church from God, violently tried to destroy it. And here Paul, he he gives his own resume. All that was just how he persecuted his character. But here's his resume. He says in 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You see, Saul believed that those that follow Jesus were opposing God. He fully believed that he was doing this for God. That's how wrong he was. Then to the Philippians, he says, if anyone, else, if, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Under the law, Saul was it. He was the rock star Jew. He was probably, would be one day, would have one day be the high priest. Highly educated, motivated, driven, extremely zealous, but a persecutor of the church. So that's who this man was. And now this man is on his way to Damascus to further let loose that raging fury on the church. But he's about to have an encounter. He's about to have a con- make a connection that is going to change church history as they know it. So one encounter with two connections, the first connection. Acts 9 verse 3 says, now, he's, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So now you're, 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 you're this man, Saul, just brilliant, educated, driven, knowing in your heart and mind that you're doing God's work and you're on your way to persecute the church and all of a sudden this light shines around you, you find yourself on the ground and you hear a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So imagine at this point, he's just trying to reconcile a lifetime of understanding of the Old Testament which points directly to that one that's standing before him now and asking him, why are you persecuting me? Well, he might be thinking, well, who have I been persecuting? I've been persecuting this church who could it be that's here? So this brilliant man that has all this knowledge, all this education, that points directly to this moment right here. And what does he do? He shows his ignorance in verse five. He said, and he said, who are you, Lord? He's not connected to God. He's not connected to others the way he should be, and he's ignorant in this. No matter how smart he is, he doesn't, still doesn't know. Who are you, Lord? He could have been thinking about Abraham Moses, Isaiah, Elijah, and all those Old Testament saints that every time they encountered the Lord and heard his voice, they hit the ground. And here he finds himself on the ground in the presence of the Lord, and he doesn't know who he is. He says, who are you? And Jesus said, and he said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So now it hits him. This is what we call a paradigm shift. He had a lifetime of a way of thinking that pointed directly to the one that just... Stopped him dead not strike Jesus put himself directly in this man's path. And he's faced with this truth. So now he's having, have we been there? Had a certain way of thinking our entire life and then something come along and challenge that way of thinking. But we can't deny the truth that's right in front of us. We try to, right? So Saul's here faced with Jesus, the very one he's persecuting. And Jesus says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So he's stricken blind, not by the brightness of the light. I believe that Jesus struck him blind to get him still. You're going to go, go into the city, I'm going to send somebody to you, and they're going to tell you what you need to do. But in the meantime, I need you still. I need you quiet. So though the spiritual veil is beginning to be lifted, he's left in physical darkness, and he can't do anything. So he goes into the city, and it says in verse 9, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he's so conflicted with what he just experienced that he doesn't eat or drink for three days. just sitting there in darkness. So he's connected to the source at this point, though his light's not on. So you say, what about the switch? Well, enter Ananias, the switch. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And as Paul, desc- Paul himself describes him in Acts twenty two twelve, he says that he is a devout man according to the law, well-spoken of by all the Jews who live there. So you have Ananias, and you know here he's a disciple, so he's connected to God. And he's well-spoken of in the community, so he's connected to the community, he's connected to others. And here Jesus says to him, he hears, um, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So contrast that. You have this man who's connected to God, because you know he's connected to God, you know he's connected to others, and he hears the voice of the Lord, and he answers, here I am, Lord. Contrast that to Saul, who was not connected, thought he was connected. He hears the voice of the Lord, who are you? See the confusion? He thought he knew it, but the confusion, he didn't know. But here, this man, fully connected, knows exactly who's talking to him, and he responds, here I am, Lord. And then Jesus, uh, then the Lord Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. So here, you're Ananias, Ananias, here I am, Lord. Go to the street called Straight, find this man of Tarsus named Saul and wait a minute. That name sounds familiar. I know who that is. And you're going to go and you're going to lay hands on him because a man named Ananias, that's me, is going to lay hands on him. But then what does he do? Okay, Lord. And he just goes to the street called Shrey. Is that what he does? No. I like the way Luke puts this it. in verse 13. He says, but, and all of that right there, Lord tells this man, connected to him, connected to others, he tells him to go do. But Luke says, but... Ananias answered, Lord, have I've, I've heard about this man. I mean, I've heard about him. I mean, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests priest to bind all who call on your name. So I think this is a genuine concern, would it not be? I think we can relate. If he knows who Saul is, and here he's being told to go to this guy, lay his hands on him. But, but Lord, don't you, don't you know who this guy is? I mean, I've heard about him. He's liable to arrest me, take me back to Jerusalem. You want me to go talk to this guy? Right? We can relate, can we not? Like I say, I don't think this is, I don't think Ananias is obstinately questioning God. I think he has a genuine concern. Not only for himself, maybe, but for justice. But still he has he's fearful of making that connection because he knows who that connection is. And we can relate. In my own life, I've been times where I've been receptive to the Lord, and I feel that leading, and the Lord say, go talk to that person. I'm going talk to them. Lord, you see them? See that guy? Or Lord, I, you know, that guy's a drunk. I can smell it on him. He's a drug addict. Lord, I can't go talk to that guy. She's a gossip. She's a slander. She's going to twist my words, slander my name all over the place. She's going to blast me on Facebook. I can't go talk to that woman. Lord, you, you know that you know that, that guy's a homosexual? What if somebody sees me talking to him? What, what are the people going to say? What might they say? Well, I can't go talk to that guy. That guy is an arrogant, hard-hearted, prideful man. All he's going to do is throw my words back in my face. God, Jesus, I can't go talk to that guy. Who can relate? Sadly, I can't. But when we strip away all those labels, that drunk is a sinner, that gossip is a sinner, that homosexual is a sinner. That hard-hearted man is a sinner. And we say, and essentially we're saying to Jesus, Jesus, I can't go talk to that sinner. I'm not going to, yeah, yeah, you can't. Because that sinner needs me. And I want you to go talk to him. And sometimes that's not easy. But what does Ananias do here? It says that uh, the Lord said to him, said, go. But Jesus here, he's not obligated to let Ananias in on anything right? Ananias shows his concern, but, but, but knowing the reason why Jesus is leading to something is not a prerequisite for that obedience. Though Jesus doesn't want blind obedience, right? But he doesn't have to let Ananias in on the reason, but he chooses in his grace. He tells him first, go. I'm sending you. You're going to go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now at this point in time, there's Israel and there's everybody else. If you're not an Israelite, you're a Gentile. So essentially, Jesus is telling Ananias, he's a chosen instrument. He's gonna carry my name to the entire world. And then if you're Ananias, whoa. Really? And you want me to go lay my hand on that guy, right? I mean, he's gonna speak, Ananias, he's gonna speak to kings. He knows you by name, he knows you're coming. So you're gonna go. So at this point, you're Ananias and you're filled with this truth. Yeah, all right, let's go. So what does Ananias do? He goes. But before he goes, I almost skip this every time for some reason. But verse 16 is so highly important, but for some reason I almost skip it. But Jesus says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, the Lord is not without justice. And I don't know specifically, but just as I read this and study, it very well could be that as much as Saul caused suffering to the church of God, here Jesus says, I'm going to show him how much he is going to suffer. And I don't know, I don't think it's punishment for what he did. But as we see, as you know from the rest of the New Testament, Saul took any bit of suffering as joy for the cause of Christ. The cause of Christ was way more important for everything that he might have experienced. But Jesus said, he's going to suffer for the sake of my name. And then verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him. But but so Ananias leaves, right? He goes to the street called Straight. I imagine it's a straight street, you know, and he can see the door down there. So he gets to the door and imagine you're Ananias. And though you were just told all this and you got all this, he's going to do this. And all of a sudden, but you're there and you're facing the door. And you know that on the other side of this door is this man that if he wills, he can lock me up and send me back to Jerusalem. He's got the authority to do that. He doesn't know the condition of this man on the other side of the door. He doesn't know that he's blind. He doesn't know that he hadn't ate or drank for three days. He just knows that on the other side of this door is Saul. So I can imagine just Ananias just kind of okay. And he walks in, when he walks in, what does he do? He doesn't walk in and have a conversion conversation. He doesn't walk in and ask him how close he is to salvation. He doesn't ask him how much he understands about Jesus dying, resurrecting, going to the Father and all that. He doesn't have a theological debate with him. He walks in, goes straight to this man, lays his hand on him and says, brother Saul. God told him to go and he went and he went in and he laid his hand on him and he didn't say, hey drunk. He didn't say, hey liar. He didn't say, hey, mean man. He didn't say, hey, persecute the church. He said, brother Saul. He instantly saw him as a brother, not as a sinner, not as somebody that would do harm. Jesus told him something. He believed it. He was obedient. He laid his hand on him and greeted him as a brother. And then the Lord Jesus, uh, he says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So here you have the man that goes in there, obedient, lays his hand on Saul, delivering the message that Jesus told him to deliver. In verse 18, immediately, immediately, something like scales fell from my eyes and he regained his sight. He arose and was baptized and taking food was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. So immediately, So Saul had the encounter three days prior to this, was put in physical darkness, was alone, and then here comes Ananias at the Lord's leading, doing what he was told to do, carrying the message of Jesus, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he walks in, lays his hand on him, brother Saul, this is what Jesus just told me, and immediately the veil was lifted, physical darkness is lifted, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Before he even breaks his fast, he gets baptized. And now, what do you have? Now you have this highly intelligent, highly driven, highly educated, brilliant individual, unparalleled knowledge in Hebrew Scripture, and Roman culture, and Greek culture. And now this individual with that resume is filled with the Holy Spirit. What can happen from here? Jesus said it himself. This man's going to go talk to kings from this point forward just glory, proclaim the name of Jesus. What does he do next? Verse 20 says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Now, these are the very same synagogues that he, days earlier, had letters to take, giving him the authority to arrest Christians and take them back. So now he's proclaiming in the synagogues, what? That he is the son of God. Days go by, and it's a complete reversal of the point in which he was going the very same places he was going to persecute Jesus' name, he's proclaiming him as the son of God. That does not happen without a connection to God and connection to others. Two things had to happen there, connecting with the source and a switch being turned on. And immediately this happened. In verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Right, they're confused. This, isn't this the guy that did all this? But now he's saying this. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Again, you don't prove that Jesus was the Christ apart from connected to Christ and growing with others. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. He didn't lower himself in the basket. If you're doing things on your own, you're not going to lower yourself down in a basket outside of a wall. It would be cool if you did, but I don't think you can. But the point is, he's, it said his disciples took him. The people that he connected with and he was growing with protected him. They cared about him. He learned of this plot, and we got to get you out of here, Saul. So they let him out, let him down. Dr. Stanley Toussaint uh, writes, he says, Saul's plans for persecuting Christians in Damascus took a strange turn. He had entered the city blind and left in a basket. Ironically, he became the object of persecution. So he's driven out of the city and he goes to Jerusalem. And we know from Galatians 1.18 that that he had spent three years in Damascus. He was in Damascus. He went up to Arabia for a time and then he came back to Damascus. But three years there he spent in community community and connection with the people there teaching and proclaiming Jesus' name for three years. And then this happens here and he leaves. Right? So how did he leave? Or, so, he goes to Jerusalem. So, three years prior, how did he leave Jerusalem? He left with letters to go persecute the church. Now, how is he returning? Not as a persecutor of a church, but as one being persecuted, right? But how might he be received? These people hadn't seen him in three years. He left to arrest Christians. So, what's it say here? It says in 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, so he knew what to do, he got to Jerusalem, he tried to connect with the local church there in Jerusalem, but well, what happened? And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So they heard about Saul's conversion, but he's here now, I remember how he left, I don't quite believe, so they're afraid of him, right? Imagine his Jewish, the Jewish community at the time, they know of his conversion and what he was proclaiming in Damascus, and now he's come back, so here, Several years was enough time to erode that influence, but not enough to erase the memories of his persecution. Right. So with enemies in the temple and fear in the church, Paul was now isolated once again. (coughs) Though he's connected to the source, his light's not necessarily on. He's isolated. He's just a man with nowhere to go. So what do you do? You got to turn the switch on. So once again entered the switch. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas now, Barnabas comes in, connects to Saul, takes him into the church, vouches for him. This is, he's the real deal. This really happened. And then what happened after that? The light came back on. He connects in there. Verse 28, he goes, he, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He went Direct right back to doing what he did in Damascus. He came back to Jerusalem isolated and without a connection, and it took someone else to grab a hold, even connect to him, plug him into the church, and then he went right back to preaching and boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. The Hellenists were the very ones that stoned Stephen. But again, ironically, now they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So now Saul didn't hear of this. The brothers heard of this. And in order to protect their brother, they took him down to Caesarea. They put him on a boat, and he sailed off to Tarsus. And for the next 10 years, he's in Tarsus and uh, Cilicia. You know, and then he comes back, and when he comes back, you get the rest of church history as we know it. He connects with uh, Barnabas, Silas, Mark, Timothy, and Titus. In three missionary journeys, he goes to Iconium, Lystra, Antioch, Cyprus, Macedonia, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica, Colossae, connecting to countless others, planting church after church after church, connection after connection after connection. And after 30 years of ministry, he takes his final trip to Rome. He is arrested. He's put in prison and chained to a guard. He still connects to his church by way of his letters and by the Holy Spirit, he gives us over half the New Testament. We have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. All of those letters is Paul continuing to connect to his church and in the end of his life when he is executed, he is still eternally connected to his church. It's all because... He had that encounter, the one connection with God, and then his connection to someone else. Now, the lights are going to go out here in a second. And uh, last week, Brian, he uh, so very well illustrated how when we're connected to the power source and we begin to shine, and we begin to shine in our families and our kids begin to shine you know, then we take it into our workplace. You know, our kids take it into school, and then when our kids are in school and they're connected to God and, and they're shining, then they're they're receptive to the Spirit's leading. And you know, and they go and sit with that student at lunch and just talk to them, get to know with them. You know, a connection just made. When we go to our our workplaces and we connect with that coworker that we just can't stand, but we just sit down and we we just talk to them, talk to them in love, just get to know them and, and encourage them. You know, then then you know another connection is made connect Another connection is made. Now back in the, in the back rows, you, in the back row, you can see a light in the distance, but you can't necessarily see everything that's lit up around it, but you see the light in the distance. You see the connections that have been made. But when those people from the workplace, they take that connection and they go connect to others, you can see more. When those people take it to the people they know, they make more connections. And then from those connections, they go make more connections. And all of a sudden, you can see a lot more. A lot more is visible, right? But then when Stone Point Church continues to make connections, and we connect outside of these walls, then you get Edgewood. You know, from Edgewood, those people continue to connect, and then you get Canton. You know, from Canton, you'll get Grand Saline. And then when those people continue to connect and you see all these connections, then you get the entire county. Now you in the back no longer see a light in the distance and the things that are dimly lit around it. Now you are in the light and you have a clarity. You have a perspective. You can see what's going on. And in that, you can have peace and confidence because you're not sitting in darkness. You're connected with others. So how do we move from point A to point B? Or the why do we move from point A to point B? It should be really clear at this point. We take it from Paul. It's to proclaim the name of Jesus and expand his church throughout this world. That's why we connect to others in biblical community. Yes, there are benefits of that for ourselves. Friendship, companionship, and all those things. But the why we connect to others is so that We proclaim the name of Jesus and expand his church. Now, how do we do it? We take it from Ananias. Ananias, though concerned and fearful, he was obedient to Jesus' word, and he went. So in closing, in Paul's own words, Paul says that, but one thing I do And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the the cross of Christ. He says, their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Oh, how I used to live. But someone reached out and connected to me. Well, they tried for a while, but I eventually connected back. And 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And he says, Therefore, my brothers, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul was fully connected to God, fully connected to others for 30 years of ministry to his death. But you can't make those connections unless you love the one you're connected to. It's not possible. You're not going to give up all of this for Christ if you don't love Christ. You're not going to die for your church, your connection to the church, unless you love the church. So may we love each other and continue to connect to each other. Why? So that we can proclaim the name of Jesus outside these walls so that community after community after community would know the name of Jesus, know that he loves them, know that we love them and continue to do the same. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you always, Lord, for the truth of your word, Lord. and. Um, and the challenge of your word, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, for connecting to us yourself, Lord, and and making it in such a way to where we have to connect back to you, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, for Ananias, Lord, and his obedience, Lord. Though fearful, Lord, to connect to Saul as you instructed him to do, Lord. And I thank you for Saul, Lord, in his life, Lord, and the apostle Paul as he comes to be, Lord, and his love and earnest for the church, Lord, and for you, Lord, that it may grow, Lord, and that he did exactly what you said he would do and you called him to do was to proclaim your name to the world, Lord. He did. He went to kings, Lord, and boldly proclaimed your name, Lord. And I pray, God, that you give us that same boldness. That though we have concern and fear from times, Lord, you give us, Holy Spirit, that boldness and strength, Lord, to, to be obedient, Lord, and make that connection and trust, Lord, that you have something greater than ourself. In store for that person we're connected to. Because just as those that have connected to us and spurred us on, Lord, we may be that very thing that sparks more and more and more and more. Up to one, Lord, that may lead a great awakening, Lord. We do not know, Lord, but I pray, Lord, that we're obedient that you bless us with the vision of that, Lord, that we may see your glory in all of those connections and your church continues to grow, Lord. I love you and I thank you for every person here. I thank you for my church, Lord. I pray that you just continue to shape us and to grow us into who you would have us to be. In your name I pray, amen.